hello. Welcome back to Black Box Poetry. I'm Anastasia Nicolas. Um, I'm a PhD candidate in poetry at the University of Rochester and poetry editor at Open Letter Books. And I'm joined here today by my two comrades at arms. Say hey, team. Hey, I'm Sean Hughes. I uh, study 19th century literature at Rutgers. I'm Isaac Wheeler. I'm a poet and translator of Russian and Ukrainian. So we're back. We're back in action. We're back to talk about metaphor today. Mm. Actually talk about metaphor, because last week we recorded The Outer Reaches of Metaphor, which you should listen to, but maybe listen to this one first. What are we going to talk about, guys? Why are we talking about metaphor? What's our hot takes on metaphor? Metaphor makes my head feel really good when I watch it happen. And yeah. that's a self-evident reason why it's important and should be talked about, because my head feeling good is the most important thing in the universe. It's also one of those things that is really central to poetic language, but it's also in some ways so obvious that it's sometimes difficult to talk about. So I think the terms we'll have to put on the table immediately because we're going to want to use them later is that uh, metaphors have two parts. They have two things that are being equated with each other. And normally the way that people divide these up is between the so-called tenor and the vehicle. So if you were going to say, for example, that a really sort of gross, nasty person is a pig, the vehicle is pig, and the tenor, the thing you're trying to get across is the quality of this person being gross and nasty. But what's interesting when we think about that is the number of possible relationships between a tenor and a vehicle are potentially endless, and lots of cool stuff can happen there. Um, so it's something that we should pause and incorporate into this. The idea of <laughs> transferring attributes from one entity to another is actually encoded in the etymology of the word metaphor because the uh, for in there comes from ferrein, which is to carry in Greek. It's the same root that gives us uh, transfer, trans being across and, and fur being from ferrein to carry, or a Christopher is a Christ carrier. Uh, metaphor is a, a, a carrying of the meaning or the significance from one to another. The same metaphor as translation, in fact, because late is this is a different root for carry. It's the Latin root for carry instead of the Greek root for carry. Ah, well done, Isaac. I was going to bring that up, but you beat me to it. Fine, fine. I will always beat everyone to any <laughs> opportunity to say that something else is like translation. It also, I think, will follow on some of the conversations we had in the translation episode, because one of the things we found when we talked about translated poetry is that often uh, a given word or a given phrase has a whole set of associations. And one of the interesting things that happens when you translate is that uh, you have to sort of find a way of creating the same experience by different means of calling up uh, the same or as similar as possible sets of associations. And metaphor brings us, um, you know, confronts us with similar challenges. How can we uh, look at all of the associations of a given thing and find ways of sort of honing in on them or choosing some and emphasizing them over others? That's a really important point about how when you're translating a word that's meant to serve as part of a metaphor, you're not just necessarily importing the one strand of its metaphorical network that you want. You're importing all the potential branches or valences of that word. The metaphor, the metaphor that my co-translator and I often use for that is uh, 
you're you're transplanting an organ from one body to transplanting same root an organ from one body to another and all the tubes and capillaries and cells need to interface it won't just do to have okay i've got a heart and i've got an aorta i can put them together it's more complicated than that awesome okay so what i'm getting from this is maybe the like key things to take with us as we like dive in are those like key terms, right? The tenor and the vehicle pieces. Metaphors are composed of two parts. Usually the like fancy snooty literary studies term we use is the tenor and the vehicle. The other thing that is worth thinking about is that a tenor and a vehicle um, exist across a distance and that meaning needs to be transferred or carried across from the vehicle to the tenor, from the tenor to the vehicle. And the third thing that we're kind of thinking about is kind of like what gets carried across, what gets transferred, how much of it gets transferred, right? You can't just bring a stomach. You also need to bring like all of its little capillaries and parts over with you. Does that sound like a good summary of what our hot takes are as we head in? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Let's apply that to an actual poem. We can get started. All right. Well, I think I have the first poem today because actually – this is a throwback. Shout out to uh, Professor Michael Booth. This was a poem that he taught in a class that Isaac and I took together my freshman year of college and that I still use when I'm teaching metaphor sometimes. This is called The Thought Fox by Ted Hughes. The Thought Fox. I imagine this midnight moment's forest. Something else is alive. Beside the clock's loneliness and this blank page where my fingers move. Through the window, I see no star. Something more near, though deeper within darkness, is entering the loneliness. Cold, delicately as the dark snow, a fox's nose touches twig, leaf. Two eyes serve as serve a movement that now and again now and now and now sets neat prints into the snow between trees and warily a lame shadow lags by stump and in hollow of a body that is bold to come across clearings an eye a widening deepening greenness brilliantly concentratedly coming about its own business till With a sudden sharp hot stink of fox, it enters the dark hole of the head. The window is starless still. The clock ticks. The page is printed. I know we have to talk about metaphor, but I I just always love the title of this, how sonorous it is, Thought Fox. It's just good to move around in your mouth. Thought Fox. Thought Fox. It's so true. I love the way a poet can make you have a good feeling in your mouth. There's some perverse glee to that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, so one of the things I was going to say is that it. So this is a poem about composing, and it's describing the process of writing something in this weirdly, you know, sort of out of body way. So the way that I would understand the metaphor of this is that uh, at the start of the poem, the speaker is sitting in darkness alone with a blank page in front of them and their fingers are moving, but at least at the start it's blank. And then by the end of it, they're sitting with a printed page and 
the middle term of this is this thought fox moving through the snow, leaving prints in the snow, is describing the process of this sort of moment of inspiration or this idea coming into the author's mind. And so at one level, this is like a totally wordless vision of poetry. It's one in which not only are we not speaking out loud, but also we go from a blank page to a printed page, and the kind of materiality of writing is being left out in one sense. But what's fascinating is that if the fox, the thought fox in this poem is poetic inspiration or the moment of composition or the moment of finding the, 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 mots justes, the, the right words for the, for the moment, then what's odd is that all sorts of other kinds of physical experience are being interposed. So instead of thinking about the physicality of words or the physicality of writing, we have like this smelly, bold bodily fox that's moving through snow and you know a- arriving in in, a, in its hole which is your your head um it's an incredibly intense and kind of like musky sort of way of describing the process while totally displacing the the fact of a person sitting down with ink and paper it's funny you bring up the materiality sean and the way that this kind of this poem kind of changes the way we think about the materiality of poetry um because i feel like so often we get into these loops of thinking about poems as like songs, right? The word lyric comes from song. We think about like um, the Aeolian lyre, right? The Aeolian harp and the way that the wind plays the the strings so that like the music from the harp is what becomes lyric, blah, 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 blah. Um, we think a lot about sound, right? Even the opening of the thought fox, we talked about how sonorous it is and the fact that lyric tradition goes back to all this oral poetry. So it's so funny that this poem actually, in a way, is really emphasizing this turn that poetry took to become part of the printed page, the printed word. But exactly like you're saying, it also denies the very like linguistic qualities of it because we're basically thinking about like fox paw prints, which I'm like waving in the air as if I'm like a fox in the air. So sorry guys that you're missing that. But yeah, it does change. It, it, I don't even want to say that it like makes poetry material, but it does make you think about what the material of poetry is. And I think that's like really fascinating, but we should probably actually look at how this metaphor is constructed at some point. <laughs> well, I think to go to your point of the materiality of po- of the poem tracks are a perfect way of illustrating the relationship between time and space in the context of a poem, especially of a poem that's described as a written physical artifact on a page, because as tracks mark an animal's progress through space, the tracks of the words on the white page track the reader's progress through the poem. And one of the key elements of why this poem is so enjoyable is that the interpretation of the tracks of the fox as the writing of the poem is not necessarily available to the reader until the fox dives into the hole of the head. There's a whole lot of potential associations with foxes being brought up here that when viewed in that context through that lens of the progress of the fox as the progress of creation do make sense. But when you first encounter them, there are many ways you could potentially read them. Cold, delicately as the dark snow, a fox's nose touches twig, leaf. This is not the sort of algebraic fox that's just serving as a step in this equation that progress of fox across snow equals progress of lines down page 
this is all the potential interpretations, all the potential capillaries of a fox. But then at the end, it all gets resolved and it all takes that one shape. Yeah, I feel like that's a good way of putting it in that there's a quote from Leonard Bernstein about metaphor where he describes how it should uh, take us beyond the grossly semantic, which you were describing as sort of like the algebraic. And that um, there's an interesting way in which not only does the fox carry all of these sort of strange and surprising associations with it, but also the way that the fox is described is totally at a distance. So that second stanza takes us from the blank page to this sort of external winter scene. Through the window I see no star, something more near, uh, though deeper within darkness is entering the loneliness. So this is the, the world in which we're going to see the fox move. And in that stanza that you were reading the first two lines of, cold delicately is the dark snow, a fox's nose touches twig, leaf, two eyes serve a movement that now, and again now, and now, and now, sets neat prints into the snow between trees, and warily a lame shadow lags by stump and in hollow of a body that is bold to come across clearings. The things that we see about the fox are its eyes, its twitching, its shadow, all of these things that are sort of separate from those little feet moving in the snow and creating the prints. And so even while we're, we're sort of experiencing this metaphor for composition, for inspiration, what, whatever, there's still this way in which like even the, uh, the metaphor is being experienced indirectly. We're emphasizing all these other things as opposed to you know, sometimes when you have an idea, it's like a th it's like a thought a thought fox running through the woods, jumping into your brain. And the key jump that the reader experiences at the end is identifying the way in which it is like a fox. It's not necessarily like a fox in that it has a little nose and little whiskers and lives in the forest. It's like a fox because it jumps into a dark hole that is your head. To uh, take it back to the mental space theory that you brought up at the beginning, Anastasia, there's a really great example that Turner and Fauconnier describe in their, their book on this, uh, The Way We Think. They describe an article about a sailing ship trying to beat the record set by another sailing ship along the same route. And if you were to read this article purely semantically, purely algebraically, what it appears to be describing is a real ship sailing against a ghost ship. It's described as racing this boat in the past as if the two were neck and neck and their wakes were splashing together. But no reader who's encountering the article is meant to imagine an actual ghost ship. The breadth of the comparison or the metaphor of, or the transference is circumscribed in order to make it cognitively useful. A similar thing happens with the fox. It's like a fox in a specific way that can excite the reader when they realize it. Well, I actually was going to get back to very, like, I don't want to be too programmatic about this but i did want to just like plot out what the tenor and vehicle is in this poem because i do think it's really interesting that exactly what you're pointing out isaac that the fox is and is not the fox is like these a thought in a very particular way but it's also not just limited to that in this poem right because we get the opening stanza this blank page where my fingers move right the second stanza through the window i see no star where you know it's kind of thinking about what's exterior what's interior where is this forest right he's sitting down somewhere the speaker is sitting down somewhere writing 
But this forest is like the mind's forest or the forest of writing or whatever. That's not as important to, to my point, which is then when we get to the fox, which we keep reading aloud, but it's just so beautiful. Cold delicately as the dark snow, a fox's nose touches twig and leaf, twig, leaf. We get that twitchiness without the actual explication of twitching. But when those the fox is setting prints into the snow, the blank page where my fingers move is recast as the set the neat prints in the snow. The page, the blank white page equals blank white snow. Mm-hmm. Neat prints from the fox equals where the fingers are moving. So the fox is actually being equated with the act of writing over the first four stanzas and then is recast by the time we get to the last two stanzas till the sudden sharp hot stink of fox it enters the dark hole of the head and the fox is now a thought so a fox is not only like thought it is also like a fox is also the process of writing which is very i think it's really interesting that within the space of six stanzas and really not even within six stanzas it's really three stanzas the fox radically shifts its function but it's still very it very neatly works. We still understand what's happening, but the fox's functionality changes, and the tenor and vehicle relationship changes pretty pretty drastically. And it feels like part of the reason that, that happens the way that it does, the way that you're describing, is because the poem is emphasizing how difficult it is to capture the relationship between thinking and and composing poetry. So it's like when you look back at it, it's hard to say what the relationship is between writing something in the blank page of your mind and, and putting something on the blank page of the paper. Um, it's almost like it was always there once it is there. Well, that's interesting because it does almost become, um, right, to think about like how much gets imported when you're connecting these tenor and vehicles. If the paws are like the fingers writing, right, then what is the like idea or the inspiration that creates the poem if you're going to like keep trying to flesh out this network that isn't explicitly written in the poem but is kind of suggested by the metaphorical connection and the inspiration becomes just like i don't know like fox intuition right like damn that twig looks real good i want to nudge it like and that's going to create poems but i like where you're going with that sean that it kind of both encourages that kind of like inevitability but also kind of makes you really like question like how inevitable is that there's uh, something about a successful metaphor in general that involves inevitability. That's something else we can mention here. A truly successful metaphor will cross the distance between two ideas, and there has to be a distance there that requires bridging, or it, it wouldn't be something worth remarking upon. But it makes you feel as if it's crossing a bridge that always existed. Mm, but one of my favorite things, Isaac, that you said a while ago, years ago, is the fact that the best thing about a metaphor, right, is there's always been a dis- like the distance you can tell is there, like you can see there's a bridge that's always connected them. But the most pleasurable metaphors are the ones that take that distance pretty far, just to the point where it, it still makes sense and isn't completely insane. Like almost like that bridge is like covered over with like moss and vines and stuff, and it's like oh, if I look closely, duh, of course there's a bridge there. But you have to kind of like twist your mind a little bit to be like, oh, right, of course, of course that connects. So I think actually the idea of a fox like kind of leaping into your brain, like a thought, right? We have all these ideas about like thoughts appearing suddenly or ideas appearing out of the blue. And you even have like a train of thought, right? We have this idea of like tr- thoughts moving through your brain. 
we don't have this kind of like animalistic, organic sense of how a thought might move, but like why not, right? It's not that crazy once you realize like, oh, we have all these structures in place already about how we think about how our thoughts move. So sure, it could be a fox. So I think the fact that we already have rival accounts of what Isaac thinks the best part about metaphor is tells us something that's really cool about metaphor, which is that there are really different aspects to it that can be accentuated. So like we've talked about like some cases where it has that feeling of inevitability and other cases, which is related and totally compatible, but a little bit different already, where once you recognize it, it kind of seems inevitable in hindsight, but you have this feeling of like, I never would have seen that. Or I think there's a quote that we often use from Wall Stevens that it resists the intellect almost successfully. You can sort of uh, move along this continuum of how strange and unexpected it seems in both directions pretty far. So there are like metaphors that are almost like hot wiring a car or short circuiting something like there is a moment in I think Timon of Athens when a character says it is uh, bleakest winter in Timon's wallet and like that doesn't really work but once he says it you know what he means there's, and there's something about the kind of like the awkwardness of it that fits with the character and with the sort of like you know the kind of like gr- like gruffness of like i don't have any money leave me alone <laughs> but we can also think about you know the other end of this extreme where it's something that uh is totally expected but is used in a sort of really kind of precise or or deft way i think i think that's a really good hot take to kind of end on I have the best hot takes. <laughs> so our second poem is going to be The Sea is History, which it isn't, but stay tuned, by Derek Wolcott. <laughs> Where are your monuments, your battles, martyrs? Where is your tribal memory? Sirs, in that gray vault, the sea, the sea has locked them up. The sea is history. First there was the heaving oil, heavy as chaos. Then, like a light at the end of the tunnel, the lantern of a caravel, and that was Genesis. Then there were the packed cries, the shit, the moaning, exodus, bone soldered by coral to bone, mosaics, mantled by the benediction of the shark's shadow. That was the Ark of the Covenant. Then came from the plucked wires of sunlight on the sea floor, the plangent harps of the Babylonian bondage, as the white cowries clustered like manacles on the drowned women. And those were the ivory bracelets of the Song of Solomon, but the ocean kept turning blank pages, looking for history. Then came the men with eyes heavy as anchors, who sank without tombs. Brigands who barbecued cattle, leaving their charred ribs like palm leaves on the shore. Then the foaming, rabid maw, of the tidal wave swallowing Port Royal, and that was Jonah. But where is your renaissance? Sir, it is locked in them sea sands, out there past the reef's moiling shelf, where the men-o'-war floated down. Strop on these goggles, I'll guide you there myself. It's all subtle and submarine, through colonnades of coral, past the gothic windows of sea fans, to where the crusty grouper onyxied, Blinks, weighted by its jewels, like a bald queen. And these groined caves with barnacles, pitted like stone, are our cathedrals. And the furnace before the hurricanes, Gomorrah, bones ground by windmills, into marl and cornmeal. And that was lamentations. That was just lamentations. It was not history. 
Then came, like scum on the river's drying lip, the brown reeds of villages, mantling and congealing into towns, and at evening the midges' choirs, and above them the spires, lancing the side of God. As his sun set, and that was the New Testament. Then came the white sisters clapping to the wave's progress, and that was emancipation. Jubilation, O oh jubilation, vanishing swiftly, as the seas lay stries in the sun. But that was not history, that was only faith, and then each rock broke into its own nation. Then came the synod of flies, then came the secretarial heron, then came the bullfrog bellowing for a vote. Fireflies with bright ideas, and bats like jetting ambassadors, and the mantis like khaki police, and the furred caterpillars of judges examining each case closely, and then in the dark ears of ferns, and in the salt chuckle of rocks, with their sea pools there was the sound, like a rumor without any echo, of history really beginning. Oof. So one of my favorite things about this poem is the way that it starts with a very challenging metaphor, a metaphor that can't be self-evidently interpreted just with the words that the reader is given in the title. And then it opens by foregrounding how challenging that metaphor is. There's a demand that's being made here. Where are your monuments, your battles, martyrs? Where is your tribal memory? Sirs, in that gray vault, the sea. The sea has locked them up. The sea is history. So the poem sort of begins with a challenge to its own metaphor that it then answers and then continues to answer over the course of the poem. That's a really great quick gloss of how to open the poem because it is... The title is a metaphor itself, like you, like you said. And the distance between those things, a sea is not in any way, is not history. We don't know how to approach that. And then basically what the first stanza gives us is like one way to think about the sea as history, right? I know it's almost like it kind of is implying, I know you don't believe me. I know this is full of shit. Here, here's one way that you could think about the sea like history, as if it were history, as, as history. And you're like, all right, you're right. It's got a bunch of shit in it got a bunch of like important monuments like battles it's got a bunch of things in it that would be the archaeological remains of a history and then after that right it's it's interesting because that's where we get the first it's like okay now that i've given you an admission ticket now we can start and then it goes to kind of genesis and starts thinking about the separation of light from dark and then like land from sea um and then it very quickly moves from that into kind of images of right, caravels, so slave ships and um, trading ships moving across the Atlantic. This feels like a really good example of how the use of a metaphor can cause both terms to be put into a state of flux. So like earlier we were saying like, okay, in a metaphor you've got your like tenor and your vehicle and the vehicle the is you know sort of showing you a certain aspect of the tenor. So to use like my very stupid early example, if you say that someone is – if someone's gross and disgusting and you want to point that out, you say they're like a pig and then the calling them a pig is sort of emphasizing the sort of gross and disgusting aspects of them. 
this is a much more kind of subtle and dynamic thing because when you say the sea is history, we're not only using the sea to bring out certain qualities of history, uh, but we're also like um, in some ways transforming our understanding of what history is through the process. So like one metaphor that might be easier to pull off would be the that history is like a river. And people have said this before, like you can't step in the same river twice. You know, why would history be like a river? Because it's unidirectional. It's always moving onward. It's in a state of change. When you say the sea, that the sea is like history, it gets a lot weirder because uh, one thing about the sea that you got to know is that it doesn't have any particular direction. It has many directions. And also it's very static because it's very big and hard to move. So when you think about the sea as being like history, one of the things that the poem starts unfolding for us initially, I think, by referencing books of the Bible uh, is that we can think about the sea as history and that it's the sort of giant, I don't know, like reservoir or, or almost like repertoire or archive of images. And those images can act as ways to think about how certain moments or certain, you know, traumas or events linger around or have a certain residue that sticks with people long after they occur. And that's more like imagining things accreting in coral or washing up on a shore or sinking or uh, being discovered or, or dredged up or brought to the surface. There's a whole set of metaphorical language that comes out of the, the, the major metaphors. So we start with this big metaphor of the sea being history and all these other metaphors uh, emerge out of that and let us think about different aspects of history uh, in novel and kind of weird and indirect ways as a result. This is a really good example, Sean. You're pointing out a really good example of the difference between a poem like The Thought Fox, where it's kind of the onus is on the reader to kind of think about what the system kind of unlocks for us, and a poem like this that kind of actually uses the very fact that the system is kind of like large and undefined, the metaphorical system is kind of large and undefined, and then uses the fact like, okay, if we're going to play this out, what else does this mean? If the sea is like a meta, if the sea is history, what does that mean for things that wash up? What does that mean for things that get found, right? What does that mean for something that gets lost on the bottom when bone is soldered by coral to a bone, right? Yeah, it's a really different way of approaching metaphor and how far to kind of push it or how far to kind of like play it out or spin it out. And in a way that relates to what we were talking about a moment ago, that some metaphors really aspire towards a kind of convergence, like this is so perfect, we're coming to a point. And other metaphors seem to aspire towards, you know, something like, uh, you know, fungal, like sprawling out, moving in every direction, sending out tendrils. And this feels like much more of the latter, that the experience of reading this poem doesn't seem to, I don't know, like clench in a sense of like, well, now I know the one important reason that C is like history, the feeling is like, oh, wow, this is a lot. Uh, and the a lot of it has very clear stakes and very clear power, but it also is something that is, I think, it, as you were describing it, kind of like it relishes the shagginess of it all. It relishes the, the sort of like multiple interpretations that it, it sets up for you. Yeah, actually, if we come a few stanzas down, one of the ones that I really like, it also helps us talk about the difference between simile and metaphor. Um, which this poem really capitalizes on a lot. So after the after the Exodus stanza, that was the Ark of the Covenant, then came from the plucked wires of sunlight on the seafloor, the plangent harps of the Babylonian bondage, as the white cowries clustered like manacles on the drowned women, and those were the ivory bracelets of the Song of Solomon. So like we were just talking about, the fact that the sea is history is shaggy and kind of overgrown and really kind of difficult to trace. But part of how Walcott keeps us kind of focused in this poem 
is um, or how the poet keeps us focused in this poem is by giving these these very specific things to kind of latch onto and then kind of embedding them within this larger metaphorical framework. So we get this like very specific, very pointed, the white cowries clustered, clustered like manacles, right? And you can picture those white cowrie shells. They're clustered like a bracelet. You can think about, we've already got this kind of scaffolding of a slave ship or like a ship with people coming on them. Cowries are coming from that kind of, from a kind of like colonial standpoint, uh, colonial kind of um, discourse and setting. And then we have the way that these like bracelets become like manacles on the drowned women, right? That they're, they're almost like holding them, that history, their past, the fact that that was these markers of where they came from before they were put on the ship becomes the very thing, the very marker of why they were put on the ship as slaves, right? And then when the ship sinks or something like that, we have these drowned women, these women on the seafloor. And then, right, because this is how this poem works, that gets recast immediately two lines later, and those were the ivory bracelets of the Song of Solomon. So now this very specific moment from the poem, this very specific simile, right? Similes are basically a very specific type of metaphor where something, the tenor is compared to a vehicle with, with like or as. So white cowries clustered like manacles is a very small simile then embedded within the larger metaphorical structure of the poem so that cowries clustered like manacles become the ivory bracelets of the Song of Solomon which is part of the biblical scaffolding, which is part of the scaffolding of how the sea is like history. When we talked a moment ago about how some metaphors strive for convergence and some metaphors strive to put everything in flux, put everything in a phase-shifted state, here it's like the point that a metaphor might be trying to converge to is a third separate point. It's not the tenor or the vehicle. It's a place that the the vehicle is carrying you to, as its name might suggest. There's a third point that you converge to from your starting points. But then not content with that, we go to, but the ocean kept turning blank pages. So we have the white surf on the ocean being like the white of the pages, but they're blank pages. They're the notional lack of history that is being filled in with these images. And that's a viable thing to do because of this comparison with books of the Bible, the linking of the events in this place that notionally doesn't have a history with the foundational texts of the culture that the colonizers in this scenario are heir to. So many things have to be set up to mm -hmm. make each of these steps in the progression work. Yeah. And what's crazy about that line is it's, it's, but the ocean kept turning blank pages looking for history. And so like, if our starting point was the sea is history and then now we're at this point where the sea is also looking for history by sort of turning turning blank pages over itself. It's this very, very strange thing. I think in, in some ways you're totally right that like this metaphor uh, almost implies other metaphors beyond itself. Yeah. So like it's as though the sea is reading itself and that the sea reading itself is – I think the that, that gloss that you gave of like the blank pages are like the foam that – uh, the sea creates on top of itself. That's so beautiful. That's like perfect. And in some sense, it gets us to this strange feeling that uh, we're all sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm making a leap here. 
if you want history, it's we're, we're all we're all in it all the time. But there's a, a a a very real and visceral problem that it's difficult to get to the deep sort of serious, complicated stuff of history, which is in some sense contained within us, but we sort of continually are playing upon the surface. And that there's something about the the kind of um, terrible depth of the ocean, the kind of disgusting, like fearful awfulness of the ocean that the poem is, I don't know, like mobilizing in lots of, lots of different ways to help us think about uh, our constant immersion in history or a constant sort of, I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to go with our constant immersion in history. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing how that it's amazing how, evocative that image of the the ocean kept turning blank pages looking for history is and how well that really captures a lot of what's at stake in the the way that the metaphor unfolds in this poem because one of i think this is i think isaac has basically already said this but one of the ways that it kind of works is by creating these structures to define itself right the sea is like history the sea is history history is found in the pages of the Bible or in the books of the Bible. And then, so it's looking through these blank pages, right? So it then eliminates the very thing that it was first looking to, to define itself by. So in the process of constructing it, it very, it it actually denies it. It then ultimately ends up saying, actually, this is how I'm going to justify the fact that the sea is history by then showing you that this actually doesn't help me define it at all. um, Now that I've actually showed you how it might be. It's like a really interesting move that seems to be happening. A great example, I think, of the tissue of smaller metaphors that creates the body of the super metaphor can be found in the architectural imagery. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. It's all subtle and submarine, through colonnades of coral, past the gothic windows of sea fans to where the crusty grouper onyx-eyed blinks weighted by its jewels like a bald queen. All these groined caves with barnacles pitted like stone are our cathedrals. The mixture of artificial and natural imagery here is just absolutely stunning, especially in uh, these groined caves with barnacles. It's very important that it's uh, groined caves with barnacles, line break, pitted like stone, line break, are our cathedrals. Groined is exclusively an architectural word, uh, uh, a groin vault. It's a callback to the reference to vaults earlier. But it's being isolated on the same line with the barnacles. It's You're almost tempted to read it as groined with barnacles, even though that's not really semantically meaningful. It merges the natural and artificial processes. But then we have pitted like stone what's pitted like stone the barnacles are it's not the stone of the cave that's pitted like stone because there wouldn't be metaphorical distance to cross there but thanks to the line break there is and only then do we get line break our are our cathedrals resolving this into a, a broader comparison or a broader transference that's only been made possible by the two that already existed it's it's layer upon layer at every step of the way. And the line breaks separate the layers from one another and script the process of cognizing them so you can make each of the micro jumps you have to make in the right order. 
Right. Well, it's even, I really like the way that you're talking about these kind of micro jumps because a lot of how this poem works seems to work is let me take you very close. Like let's look at barnacles so that then we can understand how the sea might not be, the sea is history in the way that it relates to the biblical text, like the way that we could read it onto a biblical scaffold, but we could also read it onto the way that we think of cathedrals as history as like an embodiment of history. So if we like, all right, erase that original thing or kind of like keep it in the back of your mind because the ideal reader, right, should be able to keep all of these moving parts kind of constantly flipping around. No, now we have to actually look at this part and think about it. Think about this larger metaphor metaphor in this way by thinking about this like moment with the barnacles. Yeah. The line breaks are kind of creating that ideal reader that couldn't exist in reality. They're sort of crafting... Uh, a model of the consciousness of that ideal reader because they can script the steps of thought like that and make it replicatable because you can read the poem several times. You know, it's as if they've created the model reader for a spoken poem in a little jar of a written poem and made that ideal reader possible when you interact with a text. I don't disagree, but this is getting weird. (laughs) Yeah. What do we, can we jump down to the end? Do you mind? And think about yeah. the listing that kind of happens at the end. Cause I was kind of curious. I was really interested in the way that the, the terms of engagement with the poem kind of change at the end. Cause it's kind of a very similar, like zooming in, zooming out process while like folding back in pieces that we've heard before. And then we get the end where it almost feels like the begats. Um, the biblical begats, right? Where you, mm-hmm. then came the senate of flies, then came the secretarial heron, then came the bullfrog bellowing for a vote, fireflies with bright ideas, and bats like jetting ambassadors, and the mantis like khaki police, and the furred caterpillars of judges examining each case closely. What? What do we? What are you guys doing with that? It it feels significant that the entire modern history of the Caribbean is put above water, right? So it's like, and that was emancipation, jubilation, no jubilation, vanishing swiftly at the sea's lace dries and as the sea's lace dries in the sun. But that was not history. That was only faith. And then each rock broke into its own nation. Then came, and then we had this list that you're talking about. And the imagery really dramatically shifts because in some sense, the sort of cathedral-like quality of the deep sea disappears. And we now have a series of strange creatures in front of us. And they're representing different aspects of the kind of, um, let's say, like the argumentative, you know, uh, hostile world of, of uh, you know, public life. So you have secretarial heron, jetting ambassadors, mantis-like khaki police, or bats-like jetting ambassadors, the mantis-like khaki police, the furred caterpillars of judges examining each other closely. These are, in some ways, no stranger creatures than the creatures that we had earlier in the poem, but we seem to look at each of them individually, you know, as if in a specimen jar, as opposed to in this kind of weird, deep, turning, strange, you know, clearinghouse for imagery that we had earlier in the poetry. And that ending, uh, in, the, in the salt chuckle of rocks and there's sea pools, there was the sound like a rumor without any echo of history really beginning. I think in some ways the poem is resisting the idea that there can be a clean break with history and that this sort of realm above the ocean in sort of bright shining light is truly the sort of new beginning. But I think it it also is registering the feeling that something profound really has changed and that it's 
in some ways, rather than explaining the change, it's giving us a mechanism for thinking about what we want from history or what we expect of history so that we can even see the difference between this horrible, violent, unrecorded history, this horrible, violent, unrecorded background, which has no official archive and has only, you know, monuments and massacres and archaeological finds. The shift from that to recorded public history in a series of, you know, rocks that break off into their own nations and have their own difficult births. I really like the way that you framed that, Sean, that you're talking about kind of um, the writing of history and how it, what materials you kind of have to write history with. I hate to do this and you guys should totally knock me down, like clamp down this if you do it. Need. But um, it feels worth thinking about in light of Notre Dame burning down, thinking about the way that the cathedral is kind of operating in this poem as a moment, an opportunity to think about, oh, this is a way that we very easily, handily think about history. And then the interesting ways that the conversation has kind of unfolded in light of thinking about how to rebuild Notre Dame of whose history is it, and also what histories aren't being preserved, right? Because this poem is doing a really good job of thinking about the fact that, like, yes, cathedrals are these, like, monuments of a historical moment monuments to history but then when you think about it in terms of like if the cathedral for your history or this like group's history is actually the seafloor right what is that that cathedral kind of loses its value it becomes a value it becomes valuable because it's a structuring mechanism for understanding the actual artifacts that are available and i think this poem is doing a really interesting job of think of kind of exposing how the metaphors that we've internalized really make it difficult for us to see the histories or the stories or the scaffolding that we can't see, um, that there's actually certain blind spots that occur when you're so used to usually thinking about the fact that cathedrals are historical, right? Or cathedrals are a mark of a, a, a people's society or social cultural inheritance. To bring this back around, one of the really interesting ad campaigns I've seen against funding the rebuilding of Notre Dame is from different national parks groups, and they have these photos of forests, and then it says, this is your cathedral, and it's asking people to fund these opportunities to preserve wildlife and preserve nature, and thinking, kind of recasting, using the scaffolding that we think cathedrals are important and historical and cultural markers and then importing that metaphorical structure, applying it to a forest and being like, look, if you think about a forest like a cathedral, you'll protect it. And it's actually kind of damaging to the environment that you only think of stone cathedrals as worth protecting and part of your culture and part of your history and not this other thing. I'm going to go really far afield if I respond to it about how Nature is valuable because it enables human civilization to exist, and and then we're going to not be talking about poetry anymore. So uh, the third poem, this is an oldie, but it's really useful for talking about these issues. It's Sonnet 73 by William Shakespeare. That time of year thou mayst in me behold, when yellow leaves or none or a few do hang upon these boughs which shake against the cold, 
bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day, as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Oh, this is one of the best. So this strikes me as a really good example of a poem that has a metaphor that in one way is really obvious, but then the poem almost like opens up the metaphor and unpacks it and shows you all the cool things inside of it. So, I mean, there are multiple metaphors in this poem, but I want to focus on that first one. That time of year thou mayst in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon these boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. So, like, the idea of, like, being in uh, middle age to uh, old age is like autumn. I mean, we're all very familiar with that. When uh, when uh, a Michael Douglas dates a Catherine Zeta-Jones or a more appropriate, up-to-date example of the same phenomenon, we talk about it as being a, a May-November relationship. But this is definitely, like, adding on lots of, uh, of, of uh, really delightful new possibilities to that metaphor. That uh, that similarity between the cycle of a human lifespan and the cycle of the seasons is is so super available that it's barely even a metaphor. It's almost uh, a, a fossil metaphor. It's almost like saying she craned her neck. Nobody who's saying that is thinking about a crane. It's it's almost not even a metaphor anymore, and yet it gets defossilized here by being literalized. With the uh, the the actual branches that the leaves are dropping from, which gets us to bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang, which just makes me scream with joy. That's the key move that like completely like flips the whole thing over, and it's a it's a it's a weird compound metaphor because like why are the branches choirs? It's because there are birds singing in them. And that allows it to sort of do this amazing thing where when you start thinking about all the different reasons that works, there's this quote from the critic William Empson where he just starts like he just starts going crazy and listing all of the reasons that this metaphor works. So like bare ruined choirs were late the sweet birds sang. Choirs in churches are carved out of wood, and not only are they carved out of wood, they imitate these sorts of natural forms like cathedrals do. And not only that, but they're surrounded by stained glass windows, which, like the leaves of the trees, have these sort of like bright red and yellow and, uh, and orange colors shining in. And not only that, what are choir boys like? They're vain children, like the, uh, the young man that Shakespeare is, is uh, you know, writing the sonnet to, trying to get him to take care of him in his old age, you know, sort of like emotionally snag him. And then, like, we can keep going with this. Why are they ruined? So many reasons. I mean, like, this is very soon after the Protestant Reformation, so all those abbeys had been burned down by uh, uh, the King Henry VIII so that he could sell the lands. And, like, you just start, like, going wild, and you're like, man, this metaphor is good. Uh, and then you remember that this is just the idea of, like, being old is like autumn, and you're like, how did he do it? <laughs> I love the I love the starting point of... 
Actually, that would be a really good poetry prompt for all you poets out there. You should do this. You should uh, defossilize a metaphor. Find a dead metaphor in the language. Guys, we're doing that this summer. <laughs> Find a dead metaphor. That's like the term we use for these like these fossilized metaphors, right? These things you don't notice. She craned her neck. Uh, he sprouted. She he croaked. You know, that's running out of time. Running out of time. There's all of these metaphors we don't even notice anymore. You know, the autumn of life. Uh, but the, one of the big ways that you can write that Shakespeare's showing us that we can kind of reawaken, reinvigorate those is by focusing in, right? That's the move here. We're focusing on not just the concept of autumn, but like particularly the leaves on the trees and then the bare ruined choirs. Like, let me take that one step further. What is it to think about like a ruined church, a ruined cathedral, the ruined choir stands as being similar to the like trees that have kind of been have lost their leaves so we can move to the uh, the second metaphor which is like i'm also like a, a dying fire <laughs> and this is a cool effect right like uh, both of these metaphors are very straightforward but the relationship between the metaphors makes a lot of weird interesting little changes so in between you have this idea of like okay we go from autumn to twilight i don't really want to say anything about twilight uh and then we go from twilight to the fire burning out in me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the death bud whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, uh, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. So the image of fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire. Oh my God. I mean, I'm only 31, but like, there is definitely a strange, uh, a strange sort of thing this does to your mind where your own prior history, like memories, like uh, the accumulated habits of your life become this sort of like, uh, you know, powdery bed that you're going to slowly sink into until there's no more oxygen available. And (laughs) it's probably true. But it also does this weird thing where because it's a bed, it allows him to set up this kind of like ultimate emotional manipulation of like, when I'm on my deathbed, you better be there. Um, That's so good. Well, there's even, there's a metaphor stop in between those too, right? Because in me thou seest the twilight of such day after sunset, after sunset fadeth in the west. So he actually enlivens two dead metaphors in this poem because we go from the autumn of life to the twilight of life and then basically mm-hmm. does that thing, which, which is another dead metaphor, right? That autumn is like twilight and winter is like night and spring is like morning, right? This way that we like actually graft time against time. Mm-hmm. Right. So does that reinvents that twice, re, like moves those against each other and then resets them into the way that we're reborn by fire. Like what? <laughs> the street you walk on every day to get to the fucking Starbucks was a bridge this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is this is Waterworld is what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it also does this kind of wonderful thing where the whole poem feels as though you're zooming out, but then you arrive at this sort of um, uh, very small human-sized thing. So we start with, like, we're looking at leaves on a tree, and then we're looking at the leaves shaking on the tree, and then we're looking at this sort of autumn landscape where we see the twilight and the sunset fading in the west, and then... Uh, and the black is sort of encroaching around it. And then that's replaced with the image of a fire where you have this sort of burning 
uh, as if a as if a sunlight kind of burning fire that's being encroached upon by more and more ashes sinking into its ashes. And so there's almost this process of encapsulation where these metaphors that are very familiar not only are being re-encountered in a new light, but also they're being handed back to us uh, on a much smaller scale as something that we can sort of lean over and look at. And that becomes the position of the young man who's leaning over the speaker of the poem, lying on his deathbed, slowly dying, uh, is looking at you know this huge sc- scope of history and, and life and loss. Yeah, it's actually kind of an inverted move from the sea is history, right? This is kind of like, rather than trying to show how large this thing is and what can be contained in it, um, this is kind of like how small this thing is and what can be, cont- how large the things are that we can be can be contained within that totally and this is also working it's actually interesting to think about this in relation to the sea's history because this does have a similar move where the relationship between tenor and vehicle keeps shifting again right because although we always know that the autumn of life is kind of the the scaffolding metaphor it's not readily apparent throughout the entire poem part of what we have to kind of think about is like the way that aging can be thought of in different ways. It can be thought of as autumn. It can be thought of as twilight. It can be thought of as uh, black night becoming a fire eating itself, right? Um, or that's expiring. And how those things, it actually, it actually almost takes on this idea where we have to think about how these vehicles are like each other, right? The tenor is like mm-hmm. all of these vehicles, but how are all of these vehicles like one another as well? Yeah. It's also like the emotional gambit of it is to simultaneously seem immense and vulnerable. So on the one hand, uh, I'm going to make you imagine me as this sort of dwindled small thing that's been dwarfed by life's ravages or, you know, loss or suffering, or I don't know, I'm running out of negative terms, but he's like very vulnerable, but also he's trying to also remind the the beloved of the sort of immensity that stands behind all of that, you know, um, shrinkage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's actually an interesting way not to get like real douchey, but it's an, it would be an interesting way to think about metaphors as always kind of consumed with that which it was nourished by. The way that a good metaphor kind of often you kind of forget what the tenor was in the first place, and that the vehicle kind of consumes it to the point. Like obviously, at a certain point, the vehicle was nourishing the tenor, but at a certain point, it actually becomes consumed with. You get overwhelmed by thinking about the vehicle. In some ways, the least interesting part about this is about the dying guy. Way more interesting thing is like the bare room and choirs. I've been consumed. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely wonderful. Like, I think that's a very good description of a thing that is always sort of a possibility that poems have to navigate when they're using metaphors is like, at what point do you become more interested in the metaphor than you are in the, the you know, the thing that it's ostensibly about? Mm-hmm. Oh, I say full speed ahead with that. You should always be most interested in the metaphor. I mean, in some ways, that makes for a good transition to uh, the outer reaches of metaphor. <laughs> yeah. That actually is exactly... Maybe we shouldn't call it the outer reaches of metaphor. We could call, We should call it the consuming metaphor or something like that. <laughs> I mean, we already recorded it, so it's too late for that. <laughs> We can do like a George Lucas thing where we go in and like every time we say the outer reaches of metaphor, like in a slightly different voice, it comes in like the consuming of metaphor. <laughs> and there are giant dewback lizards and ATAT walkers walking back and forth behind us while we say that because that's the way we always meant it to look. It's what we always intended. So, Isaac, 
did you be did you become a new critic because you were mad at George Lucas for uh, <laughs> ruining his his creation? Like every villain, I have an origin story, and you've accidentally stumbled <laughs> upon it. I want to kill the author because the author wronged me. Yeah, you saw an interview where he was like, it was my original intention, and you were like, you take that back. <laughs> uh, Han Solo is more real than you will ever be, and he shot first. Metaphors are so fucking cool. I know that scientists can, like, pour two things together and tell you what color they're going to be, but this is something we can only do in language. Don't do math, kids. Listen to podcasts. Yeah, it's so true! With, uh, with Sarah and I, we had a moment when... And we put an air conditioner in together, and at the end of putting the air conditioner in together, we weren't mad at each other. Yeah. And then we caught this moment where we both kind of looked at each other, and it was like, oh, hang on a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. That's amazing. <laughs> that's that's like that's like a Joycean epiphany, <laughs> only like... In a good way. Normally those are like very sad, but that's like a good, it's like a good little epiphany. Like you could totally have a, um, uh, like a My First New Yorker poem where at the end of it, like you both reach to turn it on and your hands graze against each other <laughs> and you describe the feeling of that. And then, and then no, here's what, here's, here's, here's what makes it poetry. Your hands graze against each other, and then when you feel the air conditioner turn on, you describe in very excessively precise detail what air conditioner air feels like, how it's like a little dry, and it becomes a kind of Dover Beach-style symbol for being buffeted by the larger world. <laughs> it's like, love, we must stay true to one another, because <laughs> this world hath very dry air conditioning. Oh my god. And <laughs> my complexion will become very 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 uh arid you have to do something with uh uh the idea of recirculation the idea that you're uh you're in you're enclosed together in your relationship and the air you breathe is recirculated right and you've been pulled out of circulation the circulation of the dating pool but the 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 freshness is is retained within the enclosed apartment of monogamy yes but because but because you're a serious New Yorker poet, you do occasionally have glints of like, you know, we are sort of like, uh, we're 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 indoors now, and and how do we feel about that? You know, <laughs> yeah. You don't really like, you don't really elaborate on how you feel about it, but you're just sort of like, I mean, hey, like, what's that about? You well, know? you're you're aware that we've shifted from man versus nature to man versus man, like you're exactly, aware of that. exactly, yeah. <laughs> Which is in some ways the meta narrative of the New Yorker magazine itself. <laughs> Hashtag my first New Yorker poem. <laughs> this is very topical. This is very related to the subject matter of the episode today. <laughs>